just to, I'm going to give us a sh little recap of where we've where we've been over the course of the last couple of weeks, where we are today, and how somewhat that ties together. If you think back to, as you think back to chapter five, recognize uh, Paul deals with these brethren. He wants to talk to them about some matters that are somewhat of a deeper, deeper in nature. He wants to be able to discuss with them some weightier matters. However, they weren't mature enough to handle it. They weren't able to, to, to bear that. So he spends, at the end of chapter 5, he walks into chapter 6 and, and basically talks to them about their, where they are in their maturity level and what the things that where they should be, they aren't. Uh, the capabilities that they should have as even teachers and that they need to be taught again. In chapter 6, he goes and talks again regarding maturity and that they need to press on to maturity. And at the end of chapter 6, he says that for them to do that, uh, do they just shut down and forget about and just stay on the milk of the word? Or do they press forward and look toward the meat? And that's what he does. He goes back as he talks about Melchizedek. He talks about this, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who from the back from the, came, comes from the order of Melchizedek. And I think that was probably a lot of what he, they couldn't bear, they couldn't hear. But at the end of chapter 6, he moves forward. And now in chapter 7, he reverts and, and now is back to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And I think, again... This was that meat that probably they weren't able to bear back during that time in chapter 5. So as we get started this morning, um, I'd like for us to turn to chapter 7. Um, I think this, there's, to me, there's, there's three sections here. There's, there's uh, kind of three sections we're going to look at. Uh, we're going to start this morning with the priesthood of Melchizedek. And we're going to see, uh, I think, some things here that somewhat we're going to see a review. But he goes a little deeper into this process and in talking about this. Again, remember that as he enters and, and opens this up, and, and, and again, as he gets a little deeper into this particular subject matter, think about the fact that these these. The listeners, those that he's writing to, think about the fact that they are still contemplating and pressured the, some of the persecution that they may be under with regard to reverting back to Judaism, um, going back to a system that's, uh, you know, it, it, when, you, when you think about where they've come from, a system that's, so to speak, archaic to some extent, um, not... Uh, you know, obsolete, but yet they're still because of, uh, you know, many of your comments with regard to things that have been ingrained in them, things that, they're, that they still see, that they still think about, that's weighing on them, and maybe pressure from others who have not come over to Christianity that, have, that, that still are with Judaism. Um, so these Christians are, uh, are, are weighing in this balance, so to speak. So... I think as we get started here, we're going to start with verse 1. 
you know, he is going to, uh, uh, let me just start with verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So as, as he brings out, and again now starts to move into a little bit meatier or weightier as we contemplate this, this priesthood of Melchizedek was superior, and I think the thing, the argument that he's trying to bring out throughout really this entire chapter it's going to be that the, the, the priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to that of the Levitical priesthood. Then he's, we're going to see how he's going to introduce and how Jesus is going to play out in that as we, as we think about that. But in verse 1, it says here that he was king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek was priest and he was king. I think when we think about that, um, you know, we've got an individual here that we don't know a lot about. Um, when it brings out his attributes and it brings out the things that we read from chapter 7, I want us to think about where can we turn right now, where can we turn to go read about Melchizedek? Genesis 14. Where else? Psalms 110. Where else? That's the Old Testament. And from what I see and what I read, that's it. We don't have any other air, anything in the Old Law, anything in the Old Testament that we can turn to, to for us to really understand and get more than what we're seeing and what we're reading here. He refers to Genesis 14 in this chapter. He refers to, and we're going to see that, Psalms 110. But then we come to the New Testament. Where can we read about Melchizedek? Hebrews? Where else? Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. As far as I can see and find, that's the only place. The, the, the Old Testament, we can see that from Genesis 14, Psalms 110. And then looking at the New Testament, we can see and read about Melchizedek. And, and when I say five, his name is presented in, in, in for the most part. When we see that, seven is going to get into more intricate and more detail and, and a little bit of a, a deeper matter. But uh, when we think about Abraham, you know, Abraham was returning from his victory when he went to rescue Lot from the, uh, from the, uh, the, the war of the kings. Uh, who conquered Sodom and Gomorrah. And we th when we recognize that, he met up with Melchizedek. And I'm going to jump around here a little bit between 7, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Um, as we think about this priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood, Melchizedek was king and priest. What is our Savior? King and priest. How about 
Aaron. How about the Levitical priesthood? King and priest? What do you think? Yeah, priest. And I want, and, and as we go through this, I want you to kind of think in your mind as we weigh this, you know, th- through the years as I've contemplated and just and, and read this account over and over again, there's always things that just come back, to, you know, come out to me. And we see that he was king and priest. He was appointed priest, but what? Not through descent. Now I'm going to jump down to three. I'm going to jump down to three. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains priest perpetually or continually. Okay? So when we see that, he was appointed priest, but without descent, without genealogy. So does that mean when we read verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, he didn't have a father and a mother? Not recorded. Yeah, not recorded. Without genealogy. What would that mean to you when you hear about, you know, think about, think about your family tree. Think about the lineage that you've come. What's the genealogy represent when we think about Melchizedek? He wasn't a Levite priest. Okay. He wasn't a Levite priest. Okay. And we're going to get to that. You're, absolutely. Yep. Who appointed Melchizedek priest and king? God did. So we see that there's no, predece- no predecessor, no successor. What would we mean by that? Again, Melchizedek. Nobody else like him. Okay. Nobody else like him. Nobody before him, nobody after him. So we think about, I'm going to get in here and go back to, I'm going to go jump back up to verse 1. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now, this is where, this is where I've had some difficulty in the past. When I'm tying this together, I had an aha moment few years ago when I, when I read this to understand exactly what I think this writer is trying to bring out to us and to these, to these readers, to these list, those who are listening to this. But we go back up to verse 1. It says, he, Abraham, the priest, the, uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of, host, of most high God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So what do we see here in verse 1? Abraham... Returning from the slaughter of the kings, Melchizedek blessed him. Verse 2, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So again, we see here that Abraham... During this period of time and during this meeting, he gave a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek. So we see, looking at Abraham, the father, and again, keeping in mind 
these listeners, those that he's writing to, this letter to, this, this exhortation that he's trying to, what would they think right now of Abraham? Pretty special in their world? Yeah. So here, I think it's interesting that we see this when he met up with Melchizedek that Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils from his victory. Then Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So what do we see when that happens? I think it's interesting that we see here is a, here is a situation where, and again, I think as he tries to bring out, the, this, this, uh, this writer tries to bring out, he brings out the fact that, you know, I think from lesson, in, in the lesson that we get from chapter 5, you know, he was king of Salem and served as God's most high priest. Now the writer brings out the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood to that of the Levitical priesthood. Here is a situation where the one whose genealogy is not traced in verse 6 from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, this is where I think it's key to realize and recognize, verse 7, but without dispute, the lesser was blessed by the greater. Who was the lesser? Abraham. Abraham was the lesser, and he was blessed by the greater. He was blessed by Melchizedek. And it says here in verse 8, in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in the case of one who receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And I think really what it's talking about here is Melchizedek, but also refers to the fact that those under Levitical priesthood, they'll, they're going to die. Those priests are going to die. Where Melchizedek, as it says here, as, as we see here uh, in verse 8, is that of whom is witness that he what? What does he? He, he does what? He lives on. He, st he lives. Now, does that mean he's alive today? Is he in heaven alive today? Serving as a priest? What do you think? There's a lot of people who feel that he is. He lives on through your Christ. He lives on through Christ. That's what I was that's what that's what I was after. When you think about Melchizedek and you think about what he would have, you know, thinking about Abraham. And Abraham pays tithes to one greater than what he was. What did Abraham, if he's done that, now let's think, and I'm going to get back to a, a, when we think about the Aaronic priesthood, when, and I may be getting a little ahead of myself, but I think it's important for us to recognize what did Abraham, how did he recognize Melchizedek? Abraham. How did he recognize Melchizedek. Again, the lesser gave tithes to the greater. When we think about the Levitical priesthood, how were tithes paid? 
Okay, they were paid to God. But at the same time, when those things were set up, and we're going to get into that here in just shortly, but how were those, how, how was that set up? It was a command. It was a command. They were commanded to do that. Whereas here, here's Abraham, who I think when he see and, and he interacts with Melchizedek, sees him, recognizes that the implication to me is the greater receives tithes, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham, the lesser. And, you know, when we think about the, the Levitical priesthood, we think about those, they received tithes from the people. And it was from their, their father, ancestor, Abraham, that Melchizedek received these tithes. I want us to flip over really quick because I think this is something that, I, it, it, that it's important for us to recognize when we think about Jesus and we think about him coming. Let's take a quick look back here at Zechariah chapter 6. And I can just read this if you don't want to turn there. Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 12. He's referring to the, this branch. And again, thinking about him, this branch being king and priest, says, And thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build a temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne, king. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, priesthood, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. And again, as we introduce and we continue to think about Melchizedek, in this section, I believe this writer brings out the fact that Melchizedek is superior and far superior to the Levitical priesthood. And then as he continues to introduce uh, Jesus Christ in this next section, we're going to see how he does that. But I think as we, as we consider and in this section right here, you know, when we think about Levi through Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, how did that happen? Roger brought up the fact that the priest came from what tribe? Okay. So how is it possible, when we think about what Abraham did in paying these tithes, how is it possible he could pay tithes and then still consider the fact that Levi, through Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Was, was Levi alive right here? No, he wasn't. So when we think about, there again, that ancestry, that, that as, as it goes back, we think about he's coming, Levi will be, but that's one of the things I think we can easily draw from this, that this writer brings out the fact that Melchizedek, as he received those tithes from Abraham, Abraham the father, and through his ancestry, Levi as well, where would these Christians, where would they focus? What do you think they would focus on with regard to this ancestry? They think about their past and they think about those individuals, this, this I'm going to use this term bloodline or this genealogy when they think about those priests that continually served in that realm why would they sink their teeth into that why would it be hard to let go of that 
What do you think? The Levites, when we think about, you know, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood paid tithes to Melchizedek through an ancestry of Abraham. Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek. And the implication of the lesser is blessed by the greater, then what can we conclude from that as we move into this next section? This priesthood of Melchizedek is better in some ways than the priesthood of the Levites. That's right. That's exactly right. That's, this priesthood is superior to that of the Levitical priesthood. And I think that's what he's trying to bring out here to these, to, to these listeners, to these Christians. As we move on here and, and, and as we look at, going to look at a change in priesthood from verses 11 through 19, we're going to see, and this is something I think that it's important for us to, to realize, and this is one of the things I think they may have had a problem in understanding when we think about this change in priesthood. Any comments or questions before we start this section? Okay. So as we look at, as we look at this change in priesthood, one of the things I want to kind of bring out that I feel like is important for us to kind of to, to nail down and for us to really grasp is the fact that the law and the priesthood are inseparably connected. I'm going to say that again. The law and the priesthood are inseparably connected. What's that mean? And if you disagree with me, please raise your hand. Think about that for a minute. The Levitical priesthood was not perfect, nor was the law, which it was, you know, that was under the priesthood. They couldn't deal sufficiently with what? What could this law, what could this, what could it not do? Could not take away sins. That's right. Could not take away sins. So, again, when we think about, I'm going to move down here, uh, but they refused to pay attention and turn stubborn, turn stubborn shoulder and stop their ears from hearing. Hang on for one second. My apologies. I started reading something. And I didn't switch back over to Hebrews, and I saw verse seven come, verse eleven come up. My apologies for that. That was still Zechariah. <clears throat> Okay. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, if, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated, a quarter to, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Verse 11. If, if perfection, if everything was complete through the Levitical priesthood, what would there have been any need for another 
What would there be any need for, for another priesthood, for another priest? There wouldn't have been. You know, if, if everything was perfect, but that's the, whole, that's the whole point. And so we see because of the imperfection of the Levitical priesthood, it required a change in the law. It required, for Christ was not of the tribe of Levi, as, as, as some have brought out. Yet God said he would be a priest. Where did he say that? Back in Psalms 110. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. Again, as, we, as, I, as I brought out a while ago, the law and the priesthood, they're inseparably connected. If the priesthood is going to change, the law has to change. If the law is going to change, the priest, what is significant? Again, as we're thinking about Jesus Christ, what's significant about the law and the priesthood and that change? Why did it have to happen? Let me ask it a different question. I heard a voice. It was imperfect. Okay, it was imperfect. Could Christ, could Christ, as, as God had sworn an oath, as God had promised, could Christ have been a priest under Levitical priesthood? Okay, why? Was that? tribe of Judah. So in that light, what needed to happen? Change. That's right. There had to be this change. And I think when we think about, you know, the old law had to be taken away so that what? The new law could be introduced. The new law could be established. And I think that's one of the things, again, He's trying to get them to understand that I think may have, again, as you think about even where we've come from in, in chapter 1, or chapter 7, verse 1, to where we are right now, think about him talking to these individuals when he just has talked to them about their immaturity and the capabilities that they have to understand this. You know, now he says, but we're going to move forward and we're going to get into the meat because you need to understand this. And you know what? They may have picked some of this up, but they probably are having to really digest this. They're probably having to really think, boy, you know, I'm not grasping this. And I think it's important that we recognize, you know, this, this new priesthood, this new priesthood does away with the old law. It represents, but provides, and as, as we see here, and it provides better hope, better way to draw near to God. I think... That, uh, and again, when we think that the old law was annulled, what was an, what's the word annulled mean? Is that? Voided. Voided. Okay. Voided. Any comments or questions at this point? Chris? Another a reason or another example of how the law is imperfect is in uh, Matthew 19 and verse 8 when Jesus was telling them, uh, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So there, there's more than one example of the law being imperfect. Okay. 
Thank you. Any other Alan? You know, in this comparison to Melchizedek, you know, not only is he explaining how can how can Jesus be a king and a priest at the same time, how can this be better? And as we're getting into the old is passing away and the new is come, but he's also showing them that the new existed before the old as well. It's actually the original old. It's always been the plan. Melchizedek was before the, the priesthood comes in, but now we're back to that kind of thing. Not Melchizedek himself, but that original where God says, this is my priest, this is my king. And so while it is new, he's also explaining to them it's not coming just out of the blue. It's not just this new idea God's come up with. Right. It's always been the ultimate plan as well. Yes. Appreciate that. Any other comments? So as we, and again, again, I've been showing this slide as we continue through our study. You know, looking at sometimes, you know, you look at a reference point that he brings up. He looks also at quotations that are actually made. And that's what I've got really that I've put here that he'll quote from and hearing in verse 17, verse 21, he's going to get into Psalms 110 and so, and he continues to revert back to that. Even though when we go and see, there might be some wording that's, that we don't see when we read Psalms 110, but I think we can see that the inference, the referral that he talks to us about comes back from these verses and comes back from, from this. So, as we look at this, again, the last part of, of Hebrews, looking at verses 20 through 28, you know, unlike the Levitical priesthood, Christ came their high priest by an oath of God. And when we think about that oath, I'm going to just, again, refresh our memories on Psalm 110, verse 4. You don't have to turn there. The Lord has sworn, this is verse 4 of, one, of 110 of Psalms, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, that again, is we see that it's, again, this is attested, attested of him. Um, I think it's important that we see for on one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's bringing in a better hope through which we can draw near to God. Inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath. For he with an oath, through the one who said of him, and again, we're going to look here at uh, verse 21, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Again, I just, again, looking back at Psalms 110, verse 4. So as much the more as Jesus has become the guarantee, the guarantee of a better covenant. And we start to see this new covenant. This, and, and we're going to talk more about that in chapter 8. But what is, when we think about Jesus becoming a guarantee of a better covenant, how is he a guarantee? Think about Levitical priesthood. Could we say that about those priests? Were they a guarantee? Think about that system they were under. One died, then what happened? If the priest died, then what? 
They have to select somebody else from the tribal leap. And you think about this process that continued. But what about Jesus Christ? He'll never die. He is, he is continual. And again, as we see that, former priests on one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Verse, 20, verse 23. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives and makes intercession for them. Verse, 20, verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. And I think when we look at this, this, particular, uh, this particular section, what is Jesus for us today? He is our water. I'm looking for a, one word. What is he today for us? I'm sorry? Okay, well, I'm, I'm looking for another word. Hope, okay. Let's look at the end of verse 25. What is he? Since he always lives to make... So what, what, give me another word for intercession. I'm sorry? Mediator, okay. What else? Think, think of something else you've probably heard. Maybe in, in business. Think about something that you've heard when it comes to maybe uh, an arbitrator and something that goes on. What, what, is that, what, are, what are these individuals doing? Okay, reconciling? Go between? Advocate? Okay. So I, I think it's important for me to recognize what's making this, this priesthood of Jesus Christ, what's making it superior? Think about these different characteristics and these different attributes. Christ is the only high priest needed. He lives forever. Saves forever those who draw near to God through him. And he's a mediator to God. So when we think about Jesus and the superiority that he is with regard to this priesthood, it was fitting that we have that because what? He's holy. He was innocent. He's undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He made a way for the Gentiles and the, and the people that were not of the Jewish, of Jewish background to enter into to the covenant with God. And that's very important. Um, although these are Jews that, that we're talking about, um, they needed to know that, that, that Jesus was the one that made the, it possible for the Greeks uh, for the Gentiles to come into the uh, fold of God as well. Okay. So I think here, we think about this, Christ is our sacrifice for sin. Looking back up, as, as we read in verse 26, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, and we explained and, and talked about some of those, some of those qualities that enlisted those who does not need daily like those high priests to offer sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself so again as as he brings this out 
I think this audience that he's writing to can definitely understand and definitely see the fact that this was the process that daily priests would offer sacrifices and then once a year they would go in behind the veil they would go in to offer sacrifices for for themselves and for the people but what did Jesus do he offered sins for the people he did this once he was the perfect lamb the perfect sacrifice and we see that Christ is God's son he's deity his priesthood is perfected forever he's appointed by the word of the oath again we talked about that oath that God basically swore that this is what this what Jesus was was coming and that he would be this priest and then Christ's priesthood is greater than that of the Levitical priesthood he concludes his arguments I think in this that Christ is better high priest in the Levitical system by summarizing these essential characteristics of his priesthood that make it perfect immutable and everlasting comments or questions we're right at the stopping point we're going to start chapter 8 next week I think that uh, you know as and, and everybody's coming to the door I think shortly but I think it, it's pretty incredible when you think about and I was going to I, I was going to take and I might do it depending on time um, and, and what I've got to, I'm still trying to catch up to put myself kind of a Sunday ahead but uh, we'll see how that goes this coming this coming Lord's Day but you think about the Old Testament on you know if you think about the Old Testament over here the New Testament over here and you think about those things that the old law you know and and I've heard some people say you know well that you know it's obsolete now but the thing about it is I think it was perfect at that time and did what it needed to do that was God's plan anything that God does is perfect but then you think about how even the things that it was deficient in made up whenever Jesus came on the scene and all of that is incredible when you think about that from the New Testament standpoint and the things that we look at and we consider that we're under today. I'm, I'm grateful, you know, that we're, we have this priesthood that we're under today unlike that from the old law. But uh, anyway, thank you for your, t for your time, your comments, and look forward to... Uh, Seeing you, Lord willing, with chapter 8.